That was UVA last night. You guys see that? Oh, 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 yeah. Ding. I know. Had to do it. Had to do it. That's so great. So, so th this whole, you know, breaking ankles, right? This is, it, it's a new saying, right? I mean, I'm 51. We didn't say that when we were growing up. Right? So, so every generation kind of has some sayings that they use to just, it becomes our slang, right? And so we like a little participation here at City Life. So we just threw that commercial out there to get you thinking about your generation and sayings that you have. Let's keep it kid friendly. Sayings that you have that when you were growing up, it could be sports, it could be music. And so if you're young or if you're Older like me, whatever generation you're in, a, a, a saying of slang that you use. Somebody, raise your hand. That's lit. There you go. All right. Yeah. Come on, where are all the old people like me? Yeah, Northern California, heck yeah, which was the Christian version. So we can translate that. All right. Cool, yes, right? That was big growing up. Somebody else, a saying, slang that you used. Got another one, JJ. That's fire. All right. So Monica, was that yours? That's fire? That was Monica's? It's also an emoji, right? All right, come on. We're just working that in. Da bomb. Yeah, which was what decade? Um, like 90s. Yeah, 90s, 2000. Da bomb. 85, yep, Janice. Far out, which was not the 80s and the 90s, right? I know, right? Somebody else. Come on, a saying, slang. Do me a solid. Do me a solid. <laughs> nice. I wasn't expecting that to come from you, Christy. I'm just saying. Do me a solid. Scotty. Groovy. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Out of sight. Bad means good, right? The whole opposite thing. Bad means good. Anybody else? A saying? That was fresh. Yeah. See, you know which generation you're from when you have some expression of agreement in result, right, of the saying. Legit. There you go. A little MC Hammer there. Too legit. It's rad. Nice. Anybody else? Anybody? Two more. Say that again. You won't whip me shooting. All right. You won't whip me shooting in the gym. I didn't understand any of that. Did I? Did I mention I'm 51? Right. Will. Hashtag film. There you go. Right. Sayings that have a little bit of right hand motion that comes with it. So two, two thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, Jesus gave us a saying. Prayer slang, a word that he wanted us to understand because it taught us something about a certain kind of prayer. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll grow up as Christians believing that all prayer is the same, but all prayer is not the same. There's, the Bible teaches us there's different ways to approach prayer. There's different ways that we are supposed to pray depending on the situation and the circumstance that we're in. Now, I'm, you're gonna have to wait for it a little bit. We're gonna get to it a little bit later in the service, but, but Jesus has this saying that he wants us to grasp as a Christian community, and it's supposed to be a saying that's unlike the sayings that you all shared 
right? Because those are time bound. Those sayings, they come and they go at some point, what you saw on the screen with basketball breaking ankles, there's going to be another whole saying for that. But when it comes to prayer, Jesus wants every generation to understand how we're supposed to pray for the lost. He wants us to understand how we're supposed to pray for people who have yet to respond to the gospel. He wants us to understand how we're supposed to pray for people who have yet to be born into the family of God. This series that we're in that we're calling 2.5 that's based on this, just the, the last little bit, the closing, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount that you find in Matthew chapter seven. The whole message, this famous sermon of Jesus is Matthew five, six, and seven. But we've been focusing in on this closing and as we're gonna see tonight, we're gonna back up a little bit towards the beginning of Matthew chapter seven and there's some teaching about prayer that's supposed to be connected to the end. What, what happens with the sermon on the mount too oftentimes is that we have a tendency to over compartmentalize it which means that it's such a studied text in the bible that we jump into a, a certain select group of verses and we pull it out of the sermon on the mount and then we study that topic in reference to the rest of scripture and there's nothing wrong with doing that because we learn from that but the problem is if that's all that we ever do we can miss some of the overarching themes that the sermon on the mount was supposed to give us as a sermon unto itself. So Father, as we dig deeper into these, just these two verses that we've been spending our time in over the last couple of weeks, Father, we just, we continue to pray that you would give us a heart to reach the lost. For people that are around us in our city, whether we know them or not, whether it's the coworker that sits next to us, whether it's the stranger in line behind us, or whether it's the family member that we've grown up with our entire life, Father, we know that something inside of us is supposed to stir with desire and passion to reach people with the name of Jesus. Come on, and it's in his name we pray, and everybody said... Amen. We're going to put the verse up on the screen for you tonight. So in case you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along and you can see the text that we've been digging around in. Beginning in verse 13, it says that you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. I'm reading out the New Living Translation, then I'll turn around and give it to you at the New American Standard. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for many who choose that way. Verse 14, but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So in the New American Standard, which is a great uh, translation to study because of of how exact it is to the original language, what we find is that Jesus gives us the answer to the question first. So he opens by saying, enter through the narrow gate. Now you could take that phrase and move it to the end of this verse, right? And, and that would be maybe the normal way that, that you might have a conversation with someone. You give them options and then you give them the answer. So Jesus up front says, let me, let me tell you which gate you need to choose. And then he talks about the two that you can choose from. So after the semicolon, he says, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. Verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. So Jesus is saying there are two gates, there are two ways. Last week we talked about the two crowds, the week before that we talked about it never being too late. All of this builds on this ongoing theme throughout scripture that God loves the imagery of being on a journey because that's our experience in this life 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I remember the, the first real job I got out of college. I was not a follower of Christ in college, and so uh, when I graduated uh, from school, I became a bartender, and my parents were so excited that I was putting my degree in business economics to work. I wanted to keep the party going, and, and many of you know my story. I've told it many times that that's really the environment that God really began to reach out to me in the summer of 1990 was in that setting and in that environment. And so after I made, ended up making a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990, I knew that I needed to get out of that environment. It wasn't a healthy place to be, and I ended up taking a job uh, at an international child sponsorship agency that back then used to be called the Christian Children's Fund. I think it's just called uh, Children's Fund now or Child's Fund. But back then it was called the Christian Children's Fund. I remember showing up to my, my first day at work and they showed me the cubicle. I was working in the customer service center where you were taking calls, inbound calls for people that sponsor children. And, and, as, and, the, and the cubicle was completely empty, right? How many of you work in a cubicle, right? So when you move out of your cubicle, you got to take all the stuff that you use to personalize it with you. And then when you come in, you can put the things in there that kind of make it your space and your home while you work there. And when I moved, it was completely blank except for this computer monitor and a keyboard and a chair. And that was it. But in the keyboard, there was this verse typed out on a piece of paper through like a homemade lamination effort with some scotch tape. And it was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I had just made a vow of devotion to Christ. I was just months into this journey of Christianity and began reading the Bible for the first time for myself. This was the, the first two verses of scripture that I ever memorized. It was for me, it was like God was saying to me, Fred, I'm going to be with you every step of this way. And these verses have been a cornerstone to my faith in Christ ever since that day. And right in here, he talks about making our paths straight. We're on a journey and he wants to walk on that journey with us. Psalm 5 8 says, Lead me in the right path, O Lord, or my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. Way not just in the way to live, but the journey that I'm supposed to go on, the path that I'm supposed to walk. Acts 2.28 says it again, you have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Tonight, I want to talk about the two gates and the two ways. There's all kinds of twos. If you've been tracking with us, if not, you can get the podcast. We put the notes online too. We cover a lot of textual ground. So if you're visiting with us tonight, there'll be a PDF document this week that we post online that gives all the scripture references. So tonight, I want to explain about the two gates. Let's talk about the two ways because these two things together teach us something important about our own journey, but they also teach us something important about people around us who have never made a decision for Christ. And I think that when we begin to understand what Jesus was trying to say to us, it begins to motivate us to reach the lost with the gospel. Let's agree on some definitions. One is, is when he talks about life in these two verses, like we said in the first, first week of the series, he's talking about heaven. Now, there are times where he's talking about life and he's talking about living now. And that's one of the reasons why the, the, the message of our church is heaven now, heaven forever. But here in these verses, life here, he's using that word to talk about the eternal life that's to come. It's the word that he's using for heaven. When you get to the word that says destruction, and that's where he's, his reference is to hell. So he's talking about there's a heaven and there's going to be a hell. And this is part of the twos. There are only two places that we're going to end up in the end. And then there are two more words that I think that are important for us. And it's the first that begins this 
Two verses and the verse that ends it. And the first one is enter, which is Jesus's way of saying that you, you gotta make a decision. At some point, you gotta, you gotta take a side. We talked last week about there's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. And if you don't choose Jesus, you've already chosen a side. Every person in this world at some point has to come to a place in their life, on their, on their way, in their journey, where they've got to choose which gate they're going to pass through. It's why Jesus starts by saying, enter. You've got to actually go through it. You can't stand on the outside looking in. You can't look over there and say, I agree that it's true. You've got to enter in in some manner. I remember in those months leading up to my own vow of devotion to Christ, I'd moved back home with my parents, and I was thinking about maybe possibly going to graduate school, and, and, and I was showing up to church late because there was still some of my life that, that, that wasn't quite in keeping with my vow of devotion to Christ, and so I would show up late for worship because the worship made me feel a little bit convicted because being in God's presence, right, you, you begin to realize that you begin to feel the things in your life that you know that you need to let go of, and so I would show up, you know, like halfway through the worship set, maybe like some of you do, and, and so I would show up like halfway through, and, and I would slip in, and, and then when the worship set's over, people looking around, right, and they automatically assume you've been there all along, and uh, I know, I'm onto your game. Because I used to do it. And so, so I was, and, 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 and there, the church that I was in then in my young adult years was much like this church, which we believe that God still speaks today. And so they kept a microphone down at the front just like we do. And sometimes, you know, God speaks to someone. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know, they come up during the worship set, like what Vanessa did today. It was an unplanned moment, an unscripted moment, you know, after that third song. And so, so this, this gentleman got up and, 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 and what they would do is there was only one dis- double door. It was a multi-service, a multi-purpose space. It was like a big gymnasium. They called it the FLC, the Family Life Center. And, and there was only two double doors in the back corner to get in to this, uh, this, this big room, like, like 60 by 120 feet. And so if someone was sharing something that they felt like God was speaking to them, they wouldn't let you come in because it would be disruptive. And so they, I was literally standing in the doorway. Some of you have heard this story. I mean, I'm, I'm kidding you not. I'm standing in the doorway. It's like my toes were right there on the edge. And one of the ushers was standing there and just saying, if you could just wait just a, just a minute. And, uh, and this gentleman, Charlie Bevels, who was an elder in the the church just began to talk. He just said, what else do you need me to do? What else do you need to see? How many more people's lives do you need to see me change before you're going to be all in with Christ? And, and then he said, how long are you going to stand in the doorway? How long are, how long are you going to straddle the fence, right? I'm breaking out into a sweat, right? And, 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 and he doesn't know that I'm standing there, but that's what the Holy Spirit does, He knows where we are. He knows what we need to hear. And so sometimes he drops that word in someone's heart. And that's why it's important to be obedient in that moment. You can feel self-conscious. And is it going to make any sense? But this is part of trusting in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so there I'm standing there. And it's one of the most pivotal moments at the end of that year in 1990 where I knew I just needed to let go of everything that had defined my life. And I needed to be all in for Jesus. And even though I wasn't familiar so much with these texts then as I am now, I know what Jesus was saying to me is he was saying, Fred, you've got to enter. You've got to go through the gate. Christianity isn't some mental assent to certain doctrinal beliefs where you're standing on the outside looking in. You've got to pass through. You've got to make a decision. You've got to walk it out. 
It's interesting to me too that in verse 14, he says few find it in reference to the narrow gate and the narrow way. And I believe this is one of the most critical parts of these two verses in answering the question of where are these gates? There's lots of different views. There's lots of different interpretations to pull from these verses. And I'm of the camp that believe that these gates are not speaking to what happens to us after we die. The gates are not the entryway to heaven in the entryway to hell. The gate is in this life. And the reason I believe that is because Jesus talks about finding the gate. And after we die, there's no finding. After we die, it's only directing. Everywhere we read in scripture about parables or imagery and revelation about people after death, there's no sense of people searching to find the right place. It's just God, the creator of the universe, directing us to where we're going to go based on the decision that we made in this life for which gate we chose. There's no finding after we die. Hebrews 9.27, listen to this. It says, just as each person is destined to die once, and after that, the writer of Hebrews says, comes judgment, which means there's only directing in the end. I don't know about you, when I go to, like years ago, we got seasons passes to Bush Gardens when our, when our kids were younger. I'm the map guy. Anybody the map person, Right? My wife is like, we don't need a map. Let's just walk around, right? Just be spontaneous. Like, no, I need a map. Need to know where I am at all times. Need to orient myself, right? I know, I'm not that fun, but that's who I am. <laughs> I think sometimes we have this picture in the image of our, in our head, movies that we watch, books that we read, jokes that we tell, that after we die, it's like we've got to figure out how are we supposed to get to heaven. Like there's this, there's this map that we're going to have, and if we're not careful, we could end up in the wrong place, right? We don't want to take the wrong road. There's no maps. There's no searching, the searching and the looking and the choosing and the entering is only in this life. Listen to this statement. My entrance into heaven or my entrance into hell, those are our only two options, are determined by the gate I pass through in this life. I pass through a gate here to determine my eternity there. I pass through a gate here to determine my eternity there. Hebrews 7.25, the first part of that verse is there, for he, speaking of Jesus, is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Through is important because he's the gate. John 14.6, right, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. There's just one gate, and his name is Jesus Revelation 20, 15, which speaks of the other gate, says anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life, which is the list of the people, it's the imagery that the Bible uses to talk about the people that pass through the narrow gate, are thrown into a lake of fire. This is part of referencing the destruction that Jesus teaches us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 there's some nuance in the language that we're going to look at tonight together. And when we begin to look at the nuance of the language of how Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago about the gates and the ways, it begins to 
I think, bring some revelation to us about our own journey, but I also hope to help motivate us to reach others with the gospel. Let's look at it together with some of the original language. So here's these are these same verses, and what I've done is I've dropped in the actual words in the original language for the description that's given to us. And, and sometimes this is a healthy exercise. Sometimes as you study it, you find that there's not a nuance in the language, but sometimes you find that there is a nuance in the language, and sometimes what you find is that the nuance of the language reveals a different understanding than maybe we've, we've grown up believing, because sometimes the, the people that were creating the translations that now give us the Bible, they have their own interpretation of what Jesus was saying, and then what they write reflects that interpretation. So sometimes you got to peel back and go back to that language and see what you find, and look at what we find here. When Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, he used the words stenos. And now, yes, this word means narrow, but it doesn't mean narrow in the sense of width. If you're an engineer, you, you understand the importance of, of precision. And so narrow or, or, or wide, if you're an architect, that means something to you. If you work in the shipyard and you're building, these words have meaning because it's, it's spatial in nature. But this word stenos doesn't just mean space. It means exclusive. It's part of what Jesus was saying that You've got to do something as you enter in order to be able to pass through. This word stenos is more akin to the, maybe the idea that if you're going to a place like Bush Gardens or maybe you do work at a military base and you've got to have a pass in order to get through. There's an exclusivity connected with the gate for who they let pass through. Does that make sense? And so this is what Jesus, this word stenos, it's narrow in the sense that it's exclusive and that you've got to have something to get through it. And what we know, that what you have to have is a vow of devotion in your heart to him. Stenas. And then he jumps, right? He gives us the description of the two choices. He says, for the gate is wide, which is the word platus, which means broad and accommodating. Because it's the opposite of the gate that's narrow. It's not wide in the sense that it's spatially wide. It's wide in the sense that you got to have nothing to pass. There are no credentials required. It's absolutely accommodating for whoever you are, whatever you want to believe that you can get through this gate. It's not spatial. But then he jumps to the way. And then he says that the way that's connected to the gate that's wide, he said is broad, which is the Greek word eurukoros. Now, this is spatial. This is geographic in nature, but it's spatial in the sense that it's easy to walk there, meaning that it's so big that there's no resistance that you encounter when you're passing through. So like when you go to those amusement parks like King's Dominion or Bush Gardens and it's time for everyone to leave the park, right? You appreciate that there was an engineer at some point that designed how wide that needed to be and that even though there are thousands of people that are pouring out, you're just able to move with the flow of traffic in order to get to where you're going. Jesus is saying that's what the way to destruction is like. 
It's just, it's easy to walk there and there's no resistance. And when you get to the end of that way, there is a gate that anyone can pass through. For the gate is small, stenos, he uses it again, exclusivity, it's not spatial. But it's interesting here, he changes to a different word when he talks about the way. It's philebo. It means pressed or resistance. It's a similar word that's used for if you're making wine and the grapes have to be pressed to get the juice out. It's interesting, isn't it, when you put these words up here because you realize that for both the narrow gate and the narrow way, Jesus changes the word that he uses even though in our common dialogue about it, we just say the word narrow. And then when he talks about the gate that is wide and the way that is wide, we use the same word, wide or broad, whatever translation that you might use. It typically doesn't change there. But, but when Jesus taught it, he used different words because he's trying to help people understand that the nature of the gate that is narrow and the nature of the gate that is wide is about exclusivity. And the nature of the way that is narrow and the nature of the way that is wide is about the resistance you experience as you approach the gate. And these gates are in this life. He's not trying to give us a fixer-upper Chip and Joanna Games, right, suggestion about home decoration. Where he's, the poetry of the text is not about symmetry. Well, there has to be a narrow gate for there to be a narrow way and a wide gate for there to be a wide way. Jesus is saying that the way to the gate that is narrow is going to be met with resistance. Because there are spiritual forces at work in this world that do not want us to pass through that narrow gate. And so if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and maybe you made it later in life like I did, that's exactly what you experience. It's what I went through. It's like you're, you're, it's like you're walking the wrong way when the amusement park is letting out. And it's like you're having to push through. It's hard because there's a spiritual resistance that's working against you. There's internal resistance that works against ourselves. We're going to get into that next week. This is important for us to see in this text because it should motivate us for why we're supposed to help reach the lost with the gospel. Is that people are around us every day who are on this narrow path. Meaning that they're wrestling with what they believe. They're in that place where they're trying to decide, are they going to enter through the narrow gate and make a vow of devotion to Christ, or are they going to continue living their life their own way? And part of our responsibility is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit who will lead us in moments in our life to come along beside someone who's wrestling and going against the tide, and our presence helps them push through. In those months where I was weighing whether or not I was going to make a decision for Christ, there were people, there were just divine encounters. Some of them were people that I knew, and some of them were people that I didn't know who just had something that they shared with me and said to me that I knew was part of God saying, I'm going to bring people along your way to help you push past the resistance. The way that is wide and the gate that is wide is part of God saying to you and to me, it's awfully easy to just keep doing your own thing. I think it's important that Jesus talks about two gates. I think it's important that Jesus talks about two gates because he wants us to understand that at some point you're going to go through one or the other. This is part of what we were talking about last week. 
If you don't pick the gate that is narrow, you're ultimately going to pick the gate that's wide. Now, this is another sermon for another time, but I think what Jesus is trying to say to us about the wide gate is that once a person passes through that, they pass the point of no return. The Bible talks about this idea of the hardening of the heart. It talks about this idea that, that if you resist God enough, long enough, at some point, you, your heart just turns impervious to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. I know there's lots of doctrinal beliefs that have different views on what all of that means, but I think this text tells us what it's supposed to mean, is that a person can be on the way that is wide long enough that at some point, like, like Pharaoh in the story of Exodus, you pass through the wide gate and you pass the point of no return. I think part of our responsibility as devoted followers of Christ is to make sure that those of us who have passed through the narrow gate that we're actively inserting ourselves on the way that is wide as God leads us to get people off of that road and onto the one that's narrow. We can't take them through the gate that is narrow, right? Because that's between them and God. But what we can do is begin to talk to them in a way and begin to share with them in a way that gets them off the way that is wide and gets them on the way that's narrow so that they begin having a conversation with God about their own future and their own eternity, And then as they begin to experience the resistance that begins to push against them, like we all experience, that we're there with them to help see them push through. So one of the things I love about the water baptisms that we're able to do here as part of the service with the baptistry that's behind us. And if you've been with us for the last couple of years, you know how celebrative those moments have come. And that's one of the beautiful imagery, imagery, the imagery of baptism, that it's the picture of someone having passed through the narrow gate. There are only two gates. And as you're approaching Easter, I hope one of the questions that you're asking yourself is, who are the people that I know that are on the wrong way? Who are some people in my life, family members, neighbors, coworkers, who who the Holy Spirit would would bring to your mind to say, yeah, you know what? I I think they're on the wrong way. And that God wants to use us to get them on the narrow so they can pass through the gate. So what's this saying that we referenced earlier? What's this saying that Jesus gives us in the early part of Matthew chapter seven to help us understand the kind of praying that we're supposed to do for these people that are on the wrong way? We find it in Matthew seven, and I'm gonna start reading in verse seven. And he says, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and everyone who knocks the door will be open to you. Now listen to what he jumps in verse nine. He says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, come on, how much more will will your heavenly Father give gifts to those who ask him? My Bible breaks, puts a couple of spaces, and inserts a new heading, and it shouldn't because this is all part of the verses that come after. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. And this is the essence of all that is taught in the law of the prophets. This, this little saying that Jesus set into motion 2,000 years ago, it's called asking prayer. 
And, and, and he wanted to set it into motion because it's the kind of praying that we're supposed to do for people who have yet to respond to the gospel. It's interesting that this little saying called asking prayer, which helps us to understand a certain kind of prayer, right? Because some prayer is declarative, some prayer is worshipful, right? Some prayer is petition-oriented. And then there's this thing called an asking prayer. And an asking prayer involves asking, meaning that you are petitioning God for something. But then he talks about seeking and knocking. And it's not a coincidence that after he talks about asking and seeking and knocking, that he goes right to the imagery of a parent and a child. And I think he gives us the imagery of the parent and the the child because he's trying to help us to understand what asking prayer looks like. How many of you have children? Right? So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, right, as a confession. But you know that there have been times in your life, there are days when your kids were little, and it's like they had about 10,000 questions that they needed answered that day. Oh yeah, you know, some of you, it was this morning, right? They're asking and they're asking and you love your kids, but right, but as human beings, we have limits, right? There's so much, only so much grace and patience and, and there's just asking a, one question after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. And the reason why Jesus is talking about parenting and children and asking and seeking, because as parents, at some point, we hide, you do. And for many of you, it was the bathroom. Don't, you don't have to raise your hand, right? You know, right? You're just like, I just need a break. I just, I just need 30 seconds to myself. Just need 30 seconds to myself. And what's your child doing? Your child is seeking. They're looking for you throughout the house because they have 10,000 more questions that they need answered. And they know that you are the source of all of the information in the universe. So they're looking through the house. They're looking through the house. And then all of a sudden, your child remembers. Mom goes in the bathroom when she's hiding from me. And then it comes. Mom? D Dad, you in there? Hey, I got this question. I'll just talk to you through the door if that's okay. Right? You, you've been there as a parent. Right? They need to know. And then when you hear the question and you realize it's something that you already answered for them that morning, right? Then you're like, I'm just done. Right? Those are the days that whichever spouse is at home taking the kids and whichever one gets home, when the spouse that's, out, that's, that's not at home comes in the door from work, you are right out beside them and say, they're yours for the next hour. I'll, I'll check in with you later. Don't try to find me, right? Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to do with God. When it comes to people who have not made a vow of devotion to Christ, this is what you need to do. Ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask over and over and over and over again. You keep coming, you keep asking me, and then he shifts to this amazing few verses about, and I'm not the kind of parent that you are to your children where you get exasperated with your kids. I'm never gonna get exasperated with you. And you just, you keep asking and, and, and when it feels like I'm not listening and your heart enters in that place where you feel like you've got to find me, I'm going to be easy to find because I don't hide from you. And you keep asking and then as you're seeking and you're trying to find my presence and then the, the knocking I think is part of what God is saying. You know that there are some things that you can do to experience the reality of my presence. Knocking is opening up the Bible. Knocking is getting on your knees in a place where you can just be alone to talk with God. 
Knocking is showing up on Saturdays if City Life Church is your home in a place of worship that awakens your spirit to the presence of God. He just says to you and to me, we know it has to do with the lost because in 7 through the end, verses, I mean, chapter 7, 13 to the end, the entire close is all about people making a decision for Christ and the eternal consequences that are associated with them. I'm not saying that asking Prayer isn't for other kinds of prayer. It is. But the way Jesus taught it, it's the way we're supposed to pray for people who were on the wrong way. Now, you might say, well, Fred, what difference does it make if you believe that there's a gate they can one day pass through that's past the point of no return? What I would say to you and what I remind myself of, that's not for me to judge, which is why Matthew chapter 7 opens up talking about judging. It's all connected in this chapter. He opens up talking about not judging people because he's saying that's not for you and me to decide whether or not they're past the point of no return. You just keep asking over and over and over and over again. Our prayers, I'm telling you, have the power to change the momentum in the life of people. It has the power to move them off the way that is wide and on to the way that is narrow. It has the power to uproot the tree that is bad and replant it so it can become good. Our prayers have the power to begin to change the kind of fruit that comes from people's lives. It has the power as you get to the end of Matthew chapter 7 to change the very foundation upon which that house or that person's life is built from the sinking sand to the solid rock. This chapter in Matthew 7 from beginning to end is saying to you and saying to me, go out and reach the lost with the gospel of Christ and this is how you do it. There are people that are around us every day and they need help to find their way off the wide and onto the narrow. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up found these quotes over the last couple of weeks through an online devotion that we've been doing with our kids through the, the, the Bible app. This was from Billy Graham. It says, when God, God's grace saves, God's spirit moves in and makes the change possible. It's good, isn't it? When God's grace saves, God's spirit moves in and makes the change possible. This one's by Martin Luther. It says, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. It's powerful, isn't it? A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, and is worth nothing. Listen to these verses. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. It says, today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and and curses, and now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Jeremiah 21.8 says, tell all the people, this is what the Lord says, take your choice of life or death. You can't talk about two choices and not read Joshua 24, 14, and 15, right? I'm not even sure you're going to heaven if you don't have this plaque in your house somewhere. 
So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today. Choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the God of the Amorites in whose land you live now? Here it comes. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. There is a choice that every person is going to make at some point in their life. It's a choice that you have to make. It's a choice that I had to make. And part of making this choice, like what Martin Luther was talking about, is that when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, we're willing to begin to bear some weight. We're willing to pay a price. That's why Jesus says, before you come to me, make sure you count the cost. And why does he say that? Because he's saying, I'm going to ask some things of you. And I think one of the things that he asks of us is to be responsible for our fellow man, to be responsible for the world that is around us. If you've made it through the gate that's narrow and pushed past the path of resistance, I'm telling you, it's because people were praying for you and people were reaching out to you. And the question is, are you going to be that person for someone else? Are you willing to find your way onto that way that's wide? It's part of this idea of being in the world but not of the world so you can have relationships with people that haven't found their way through the gate that's narrow and begin to talk with them about your faith. You don't have to be a Bible expert. You just have to be available. And as you begin to realize who some of those people are that God puts on your heart, that you take up asking prayer. And you're every day just talking to God about those people over and over and over and over, seeking God's face, being in his presence, knocking on the door through worship and focused prayer and, and being in settings where you're reading God's word and you're awakened. And then when you're there, when you feel God's presence, hey, God, I want to talk to you about Bob. And just begin asking God for his heart, for his life, for his eternity. You might say, Fred, how does my prayer connect to all that? I don't know. I don't know. I just know the Bible says it does. And I know that I'm here as a devoted follower of Christ because there were people that were praying for me. As we're approaching Easter, I hope that you will become an asker, a person that asks and seeks and knocks for the lost so that they don't have to get to the gate. It's past the point of no return. Stand with me. Father, as we worship here, even tonight, I pray that you would begin to put some people's names in our hearts. I, I pray, Father, that you would begin to, to, to show us some people's faces and that you're saying to us, they're yours. These are people that I put you in, in their life so that you can begin to pray for them. So God, that you can begin to say to us that you've, you've put us in their lives so that we can begin to talk with them about the gospel. Jesus, if, if you made this topic the close of your most famous sermon, what are you trying to tell us about how important this is and the role that we play in reaching the lost? Jesus, you said, if you be high and lifted up, that all men would be drawn unto you. I pray, Father, that we would be a people, that we would be a people that lives our lives on the lookout for the person who's lost, for the gospel, to be an ambassador for you in this world, for people that are on the path to destruction. In Christ's name we pray. Come on, and everybody said together.
Amen. Let's worship. Let's worship.